0: This episode is brought to you by Why Thanksgiving. That's the book that Steve Dace wrote, and we're going to be talking with him today on the podcast. But his book, Why Thanksgiving, the pilgrims started Thanksgiving for the same reason they came to America, because they loved God. And we are giving away a copy of his very brand new book for children. So if you want to enter this giveaway, which is open until November 5th, go to the show notes at 41 morecom forward slash 185 and go ahead and enter. I can't wait for one of you to win this book. And if you're wondering what this book is all about, stay tuned. You're in for a treat. We will be talking to Steve Dace in this episode. Our guest today is the author of numerous books and Blaze TV podcast host of The Steve Day Show. And I told Steve when we got on the call that I was going to try not to fangirl too much on um, on our chat, but... I honestly have stopped listening to a lot of the podcasts I used to, and I have been listening to Steve's almost every day for about 14 months because I found two things I loved about Steve's podcast. One, it was coming from a Christian worldview, which I appreciated hearing like the news of the day and the politics and the culture and all these things from a Christian worldview. And number two, he wasn't afraid to talk about topics that other conservative podcast hosts were afraid to talk about. So That's why I kind of love Steve's show. And it was really cool when I heard he was doing this book and they read, his publicist reached out to me and said, Hey, do you want to have Steve on your podcast? So of course I wanted to have Steve on. So this is our chat with Steve Dace. Definitely go over to the show notes and enter to win his book. If you aren't the winner, of course you can buy it. And he'll tell us that, uh, at the end of our chat where you can find that or go to the show notes and we will link to it there. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Steve. You know, this is a children's book, but our conversation is not surface level. He is such a like a deep thinker, it's interesting. I can say, hey, so who are the pilgrims? Tell me about the pilgrims. And I mean, he goes into so much depth that, you know, you probably didn't know. And he surprised me with some of the things he told me too. So this is a pretty cool conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Steve Dace. Hey, Steve, welcome to the Homeschool with Moxie podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, before we jump into your book, which we definitely will be talking about, I'd love it if you could just give us a peek into who you are. And especially I was thinking about your, you have a powerful testimony and a pro-life story that I think my listeners would love to just get a glimpse into. So could you just tell us kind of a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, my mom got uh, pregnant with, uh, when she was a uh, freshman in high school uh, with her boyfriend who was a senior. Uh, She found out she was pregnant over Christmas break in uh, 1972. And then a few weeks later, of course, is Roe versus Wade. And um, she has a decision to make that wasn't on the table previously towards the end of her first trimester. And she thought long and hard about having an abortion. She grew up uh, poor Uh, here in Des Moines, kind of the white trash, what was considered the white trash side of town. It was called the South Side Bottoms back in those days. Her mom was twice divorced with five kids from two different dads. So two different husbands. So, I mean, it it was very poor. And uh, in the end, she just decided she could not go through with it. So at the ripe old age of 15, on July 28, 1973, uh, she had me. And, you know, she would say now, 49 years later, I'm the best mistake she ever made. Now, it was not easy. We were uh, on, I remember as a kid being on food stamps and welfare and ADC and uh, government, uh, you know, cheese, which isn't that bad, actually. Uh, I remember eating school reduced lunches and stuff like that. Uh, She married my stepdad where I got my last name and uh, he had a lot of demons and a lot of issues. and, And so I don't wanna make it seem like, oh yeah, I mean, this was a, you know, uh, this was a Hallmark movie and it was great being a 15 year old mom. And no, I mean, it was very difficult. And, uh, and I'm sure there were plenty of times when she was growing, when I was growing up and she was too, that, did I do the right thing? Should I give it up for adoption? But you don't have the benefit of the long-term view. Right. And, um, and now, you know, she couldn't contemplate having made any other decision, you know, and it, and it's not just my on um, my mom on my wife's side. We all this so called exceptions, rape, incest, life of the mother. All those kids are names in our family, um, you know. Uh, and so, it, it, beyond our own biblical convictions, it's really it's a personal issue to, all, to us. Uh, that's been passed on to our own children. Our oldest actually just did a, a massive. Uh, supply drive for uh, the Agape Pregnancy Center here in town just this last weekend, you know, because our kids understand that without the, the choices of life that their grandparents made and other family members made, they wouldn't be here today either. So, yeah, that's that's so I mean, that's just that's endemic to our DNA uh, really as a family.
0: I love it. Thanks for taking the time to share that. That is, I, I just, I think that's a great story. We have adoption in our family. Our youngest is adopted, so same with us. It's like it's a personal. It has a name and a face. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just a, a theory. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. So let's talk about your book. Why Thanksgiving? The Pilgrims started Thanksgiving for the same reason they came to America, because they loved God. I heard you say this was the hardest book you ever wrote. Why did you want to write it?
1: I didn't know that I wanted to uh, actually. Uh, my, after Rush passed away last year, Rush Limbaugh, and he had uh, a lot of success with his uh, Rush Revere American history books for kids. Cause he had a lot of success with like everything he did. My publisher came to me and said, you know, there's a lot of room in this space. Are you interested in trying it? And I'm like, I, I it's way out of my comfort zone. You know, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm not really sure what to do, um, but I'll tell you what I'll consider it if we can make it America's Christian heritage. Otherwise, why would I try to redo what people like Russian uh, and others have already done well? I, I mean, I, I, how could I do better? So, is there a is there a is there a niche here that has not been tried in the mainstream, even on the right? And to me, it was America's Christian heritage. And so they came back to me and said, "All right, we're we're curious. What would be?" The, the first book, if we did a series on this, that would kind of be the pilot book. And I just, not even thinking about it, just kind of responded back instantly. Well, I mean, if we're gonna talk about America's Christian heritage, you start at the beginning of America's Christian heritage, you start with the pilgrims. And so what if we did a whole series of children's books on America's Christian heritage, but it answered why? You know, why do we have these traditions? Why do we have these customs and heritage? Where's this heritage in, these, in this legacy come from? And so let's start with really the beginning if Christopher Columbus you know discovered North America, the Puritans really discovered America. You know, the, the the social compact of the Mayflower compact was influential you know immensely influential in the founding documents of our country, you know, over a century later. And so they liked the idea, but then and they had an award-winning illustrator who had done Clarence Thomas's children's biography about a year prior. And so really, it comes down to writing it. And I got to tell you, I mean, <laughs> trying to write something that a four-year-old could read, you know, it was the 28 pages or so that this book is. I mean, I, I i went through more edits on this book than I just did on the next book I have coming out next year on The Rise of the Fourth Reich. That book's 400 pages, OK? And I went through three more rounds of edits on this children's book that I did on that. Just trying to, how do how do we distill down these transcendent, you know, know, cosmic truths, but into a way that, you know, a four or five-year-old would understand it if mom and dad or grandma and grandpa read it to them was much more of a challenge than I thought it was going to be. But I'm really pleased with how it turned out. The book looks great. Um, There's the comprehensive story of the gospel is included, the history of the Puritans, why they fled England, uh, the, the dangers of the trip they were up against. And the incredible providential history of Squanto. You travel thousands of miles across the English channel. You you, you don't end up settling actually at where you originally tended to. Um, and you just happen to run into an, an indigenous native who knows your language because he had been saved from the slave trade by Christians in another part of the world. I mean, the odds of just finding that needle in the haystack are astronomical. And we of course know that's providence, right? And so, I'm really pleased with how the book turned out.
0: Yeah, I loved how you did include like God's sovereignty over all of these things. And it wasn't just a, you know, a quick overview of the story. You really did mention those things, which are the most important parts of the story. So so who were the pilgrims. Did you learn anything surprising when you researched this? And how did you research? How did you do research for a book for
1: four years? I'd done a lot of research previously on the Puritans, just in my own faith walk and for my own show. Um, when my wife, uh, who's a therapist, a Christian therapist, she had to get her initial seminary degree. And uh, and one of the classes she had to take at seminary was on eschatology. And her eschatology professor was a very rabid, um, you know, left behind style, premillennial dispensationalist, which is the predominant view in American Christianity. But he was also pretty cocky about it. Like I would listen to her lectures with her and And he would say stuff like, I've got the same eschatology as Jesus and stuff like that, you know? And, and so when it came time to write her final, she's like, I don't know what to write. You know, what do I do? I'm out of my comfort zone. And I said, I think this guy is really smart and would respect you if you actually took a counter eschatological view, but if he did it well, I think he'd actually respect it, you know? And so we went through some books on uh, the pilgrims, the Puritans, theonomy, things of that nature, because I've studied all the major views on, on Christian, you know, end times philosophy. So I had stuff in our library on all of them and she ended up writing her, um, her eschatology class thesis on there would have never been a United States of America without theonomy and post-millennial eschatology and based it all on the pilgrims and the Puritans. And she got a great grade on it, as if I recall. Okay. And so we had kind of been through some of this history together already and, you know, one of the things that I think I learned through this process that is fascinating is that originally the pilgrims wanted to. originally settled in uh, in uh, in the Netherlands, in Holland, and for a kid who grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Christian Reform Mecca, you know. And so Calvin College, Hope College. I I was a pagan in that when I grew up in those areas, but I knew of the cultural landmarks and kind of what they stood for, but I didn't know the history, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they they originally settled in Holland, and in order to accept them basically as refugees, they had to promise the Dutch government that they would not evangelize the people. And as the good five-point Calvinists they were, they absolutely believed in, in a limited atonement, and the L and the tulip there, so they're like, well, we're not much for knocking on doors and asking you, would you know, if you are you sure you go to heaven when you die anyway, so we're good with that, all right? And so they moved in. And the funny thing happened, though, even though they largely kept in themselves, they were they were living counterculturally. You know, they were living out Calvin's notion of a city within a city and his his form of evangelism, the idea of living counterculturally, living the kingdom of God and having that in, you know, uh, influence the culture around you. And so after living this way for a while, the women were like, hey, man, your husband isn't a drunk cares for all takes care of all the crops. Make sure your children mind and respect you. What's going on there? And the husbands were like, dude, you got like 17 kids. So I know your wife's going to bed with you at night. What's going on there? Okay. And and so the the rest of the community was like, we want to live the way you guys live. So where'd this come from? And so as time went on, when they felt the call to try to go back to England and engage the Church of England again, that same Dutch government that made them promise not to evangelize in order to, to to come there, they had so successfully evangelized the community from the inside out, that same Dutch government begged them to stay, even offered them their own colony and said, we'll give you, we'll kick out, you know, one of the indigenous peoples in the East Indies here, and we'll give you your own colony. Go and move there. We don't want to lose you guys. And it just, it made me wonder today, how many of our churches, if they called the the city or the county and they said, you know what? Poor went out. We're out of here. We're done. Yeah, we're gonna do something else. And would the city and county say, "You guys are the best citizens we have. You're the best." I mean, you you you're the ones that you pay your taxes. You're law abiding. You do good works. Your kids are respectful in the community. Would 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 they look at it like that, or would they get on the, the phone to the zoning board and say, "Hey, man, rezone that property. That's worth a lot of money." Stat. Right. Made me think a lot about that as I was putting this together and learning that history.
0: Oh, that's really good. That's, um, that's really convicting. (laughs) So what do you think most parents do wrong, get wrong when they try to teach about the story of Thanksgiving to their kids? What do you think? What do you think the disconnect is?
1: I think a lot of this history is just missing. I mean, I, so I'm 49. I don't know how old you all, how old you are, but I remember when I was growing up, it's the, see, I knew a lot of this history, even though I didn't know the theological history behind the pilgrims and the Puritans, because when I was growing up, it's the, it, it, the, 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 Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special was an hour long mm-hmm. and you got the first 30 minutes with peppermint Patty trying to throw a Thanksgiving gathering. Okay. But the other 30 minutes you had was Charles Schultz telling this history mm-hmm. about the giant screw and all that. That was, that aired on national television when I was a kid. And I mean, I watched that every single year. All right. You can't find that. I mean, you gotta go, you gotta go buy that separately nowadays. They won't run that anywhere nowadays. And so I, I think, you know, I'm not into, I don't think we need to romanticize American history. I don't think we have to nostalgicize it. Um, I, I think that um, it's not perfect. There are, there have been calamitous national sins. We did have members of the founding fathers that signed a document that said all men are created equal and then went home to their slaves, including the guy that actually wrote those words. All right, there are, there are, there are founding fathers who pledged their lives, fortunes and sacred honors and never accepted the grace and forgiveness of Christ and are in hell right now as you and I are speaking. So I don't think we have to make it some sort of sacred thing. It's not the book of Acts, all right? The American Revolution is not the early church. I don't think we have to elevate it, but I don't think we have to denigrate it either. The the truth and the beauty of God working through these imperfect vessels to create the longest standing experiment in self-government and liberty in the history of this fallen creation. I think that just, it beautifully speaks for itself. We don't have to lie. You know, I don't lie about the fact I was born out of wedlock with my mom fornicating with her high school senior boyfriend, because what what they meant for evil, God used for good. All things work together for the glory of God and all the, and those called according to his purposes. I don't, the Bible doesn't lie about human nature often tells it in uncomfortable, gristly detail. And, and, and in details that frankly, a lot of people in our churches would be offended if the pastor read those Portions of scripture out loud to them. I, I just think we just tell the truth. The truth, as I like to say on my show, the, the truth is its own reward. Just tell the truth. The truth is, these were imperfect people. Maybe they maybe, and 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 ask yourself, what is it that threatened them? That over a hundred of them, with including women and children, got on a rickety boat and risked their lives to get away from it. It wasn't Muslims, it was this wasn't the Crusades, it wasn't Moors, right? It was their own church, their own, the people that looked like them spoke the same language as them, went to the same church that they did. Right. And I I just think that I just tell the truth. I think the truth just does fine just on its own. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how their Christian teachings influence our form of government?
1: The idea that, well, first of all, the very words in the Mayflower Compact, all right, for the, for the kingdom of God and the advancement of the Christian religion. And, and that language is somewhat mirrored in the preamble of every state constitution. There is an acknowledgement of a supreme being, a supreme ruler, um, a divine lawgiver, um, James Madison, who wrote much of the Constitution, the, the called, referred to, to the God of the Bible as the, quote, governor of the universe. All right. And so though that acknowledgement from the outset, and you see this acknowledgement in the Declaration of Independence. And, in the de- you know, we had 13 colonies all but one of them were founded by some vestige of the Christian church. And the only one that was not Rhode Island was kind of founded to be an economical home of all Christian denominations. So the church is heavily influenced. You had Catholics in Maryland, you had Quakers in Pennsylvania, um, you had Congregationalists in, in in Connecticut, you had Episcopalians and Baptists in places like Virginia and Georgia. And she had all these denominations and and they had different teachings about um what the Bible says in Romans 13 about following governments and to what extent do we have to submit to authority? And so they were very, it was a big debate about whether they could even under biblical, under natural law, the law of nature and nature's God, under Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, which was the common law that these Englishmen studied, was it even lawful to revolt against a government? I mean, if all all authorities on earth are established by God, then, then aren't we disobeying God? They debated this. And that's one of the reasons why you, the, the declaration is written almost as a legal document, where in the middle you have these, this long train of abuses and they're itemized. And, 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 the, and they're basically making the case for us to continue to live the way King George wants us to live would be to violate God's law. And then they even say, if we're wrong, judge the, they ask God, judge the rectitude. They use that word, which was a word meaning motivations, judge our hearts. Are are we doing, we don't want to set a terrible example for the world. All right. The idea that we, and and this will only be successful. We have, we're just some ragtag, you know, uh, plantation owners up against the most powerful armada in the world. There's no way this can be successful without divine, without a firm reliance on divine providence. And so, God, judge our actions and don't let us be successful if we are in the wrong. If we are wrongly interpreting your laws into our contemporary world to fit our agenda, do not let us be successful. There's an incredible amount of humility there, and and I think that that begins with the with what the with the with the pilgrims you know forged with the compact there. And the Massachusetts Bay Colony.
0: So I've heard you say before, the people are the problem. I'm wondering if that also means that we're part of the solution to what's wrong in our country Absolutely. And do you look, do you see this book as part of your helping equip parents to, you know, teach the next generation what the correct story?
1: Correct. I think that the answers to the problems of the present and the future are often found in the past. There is nothing new under the sun, just new people under the sun that haven't seen or heard about this yet. Mm-hmm. history doesn't just repeat it also rhymes and and it's because there's the, the constant is us the constant is human nature and the degree to which it has fallen okay and and so therefore you can predict usually without revival or without in, a providential influence, how human nature will behave. This is why John Adams said, This constitution is only for a moral and religious people. We know what you will do. You will take this liberty and freedom if you don't fear God, and you'll become the mob outside of Lot's house. Okay. That's what you'll do. Uh, Thomas Paine, actually, after the American Revolution, went to France to observe their revolution. And he was more, one of the more, I guess we'd call them, Ayn Rand, he was maybe the closest thing in our founding fathers to an Ayn Rand who was a virulent atheist, he was very secular, and and Paine loved the beau populi aspect of the French Revolution, and and the power to the people and the storming of the Bastille, and he came back and he had written a book about how much he loved the way that the French did it, and he went to Ben Franklin, before Franklin died, uh, who was of course considered to be maybe the most licentious of our founding fathers. And so he thought for sure Franklin would endorse a power to the people, vo populi revolution. And Franklin was like, don't ever publish this book or ever see it, let it see the light of day. This is a terrible idea. And look what, look what happened after they stormed the Bastille. They, they tore down the, the cathedral of Notre Dame. They got rid of the Virgin Mary and put in the goddess of reason. They brought out the guillotine and started executing people. In other words, they weren't much different than the people they overthrew. Okay. They really just shifted the power dynamic from one group to another. We're not trying to do that here. We're trying to reset the course of human history when in the course of human events. And so I, I think um, a, a rightly divided understanding of our history, not overly romanticizing it. It's not, it's it's supernatural in its success, but it but it's not in its, it's not revelation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Meaning that, you know, without a United States of America, God's eternal plan changes not at all one, one way or the other. We're not Israel. OK, so with, with that in mind, though, I think resetting that history and learning from it and teaching it. Uh, sister they didn't get all that history out of the government schools because it fit their their left- wing agenda you know what I'm saying they didn't they didn't erase all that stuff because it was going to help them brainwash your kids they took it out because it was going to stop them from brainwashing your kids so then it would behoove us to want to put it back in.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is why many of my listeners, myself included, homeschool, because we want to be able to control that, you know, what are they learning? So can you maybe give us some other resources that you recommend for parents in today's climate?
1: And there are so much curriculum now compared to when we first started, there was a ton. But the, here's, the, here's, here's two things that I think would be very helpful. Uh, one was done about 10 years ago uh, called The Truth Project. Um, I would highly recommend that. I'll give you three. The Truth Project and and, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, you know, one of the great evangelists of the last century. uh, He did a book called Beyond Belief to Conviction. Beyond Belief to Conviction, specifically to challenge young people and their worldview. And then if you're looking for something to do as a family or within a small group, there's a fantastic video curriculum uh, called That the World May Know and a lot of it is shot on site. Um, and the pastor who over, who oversees this takes you to not the touristy places in the Holy land, but the actual places where a lot of this stuff was to have occurred. And, and there's a lot of great lessons and life applications for the world in which we live in that, uh, and it's just exceedingly well done. I'd highly recommend that too.
0: Great. So what what would you say is the biggest takeaway from why Thanksgiving?
1: That ultimately, without recognition of God and reverence, not just recognition, but reverence for Him, there would not have been an America, there will not be an America, and there is no future hope for America.
0: I love this line. As we wrap up, I think this is a great line for homeschool moms too. You said, their trip on the Mayflower taught us that God is faithful if we have the courage to do what he asks us to do. And many homeschool moms I talk to don't feel equipped to step out in faith and bring the kids home, even though they know that's what God's calling them to do. But we know God is faithful. So as we wrap up, what kind of encouragement can you give the homeschool moms listening today who, yeah, it's tough raising kids in this environment. It's tough you know, sacrificing to bring them home. How would you encourage those homeschool moms?
1: I'm a kid born to a 15 year old mom. There is no rational explanation. I mean, I have been fired from n- multiple jobs. I have m- made terrible decisions. I have had meltdowns. I dropped out of college just because I got bored. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not qualified to do what I do. There is only one explanation for how I got to where I am at. And, and if I get anything right, whenever I get anything right, it is just because I just bet on God every time. Uh, I I bet on the most powerful and only undefeated being in the universe. And that's where that's where my confidence comes from. My, my I I mean, a year ago, the idea of writing a children's book, I'd have, I'd have laughed, okay? You know, we're getting ready to uh, finish the film version of one of my other books here any day now. The idea that that was accessible for me that I could even under connect with people who could pull that off, even if they thought it was worthy enough content. They just called me out of the blue and said, Hey, we want to buy the movie rights to your book. I'm like, okay. I mean, I I am living proof of the sovereignty of God. My wife and I met in a dial up modem AOL version of Tinder in 1995 when we were pagans in heat. Okay. The idea we were going to last being married 25 years as a Christian homeschool family. I mean, if God had showed me that, that first time we hooked up, I'd have ran away as far as I possibly could and said, no way am I going to do that. I couldn't imagine doing life any other way now. And so um, perfect love casts out all fear. Uh, the great Francis Schaefer used to say, your God is too small. And I, I think we need to gamble and bet on God more.
0: So, Steve, where can people find you and where can they find your new book?
1: Uh, The new book will be out uh, here in just a couple of weeks. We're doing pre-orders right now at Amazon.com. And I know, I know, no one wants to give them any more money. Unfortunately, 84% of all books sold in America every day are from Amazon. It's almost impossible to do this without them. So forgive me. Um, Trust me, as an author... Their, their their profit splits with you are not generous. I'd love to have another option. They know they're a monopoly and they act like it, yes. <laughs> okay? So, uh, but it's available for pre-order right now if you want to get it. And uh, the best place to find me is just to go to uh, blazetv.com slash my last name, Dace. Blazetv.com slash Dace.
0: Steve, it was great talking to you. Thanks for joining me today.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation I had with Steve Dace. Be sure to head on over to the show notes at 41more.com forward slash 185 and enter to win his new book, Why Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us today. And in the meantime, happy homeschooling.